It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 34, Return to a Dream, an unfancy death at Nancy. The final two years of Charles the Bold's life would see him achieve one of his life's ambitions, uniting his northern and southern domains as one continuous territory. This was soon followed, however, by him suffering a hat-trick of defeats at the hands of the Swiss, which would leave him unrecognisably dead, naked, and half-eaten in a frozen pool of water. Having come to peace terms with the Emperor when abandoning his siege of Neuss in mid-1475, Charles turned his attention to his plans with Edward IV of England to jointly conquer France. Louis XI successfully bribed Edward, however, foiling this plan, so Charles instead decided to go and crush those who had crossed him by conquering Lorraine, getting his grip on Savoy, and from there planning an invasion of Switzerland. This was a great idea in theory, but his own infamous lack of mercy provoked a stronger-than-expected unity among his enemies, which compounded the financial problems he was facing after years of constant military campaigns. Defeats at Granson, Merton, and finally Nancy saw the past glories of the House of Valois-Burgundy reversed, and, as he was presciently warned once by one of his advisors before crushing Liège, those glories were returned to a dream. Perhaps a more accurate description, though, is that they were thrust into a nightmare. Before we get into the blood and guts of today's episode, let us first take a quick detour to discuss one of the most important primary sources we have been using when researching Charles the Bold, which are the memoirs of Philip de Comines. As a courtier to the Burgundian dukes, Philip de Comines was close to Charles, who knighted him in 1468, and he was present at key moments in the duke's reign, such as fighting alongside him in the Liège Wars. After 1472, however, Comines' explicit insider knowledge of the Burgundian court ended, and his memoirs, which were written much later, have long been recognised as having a certain untruthfulness to them, and so we've been trying our best to take what he writes with a grain of salt. Comines was likely not always trying to provide an accurate account of events, but rather attempting to redeem his own legacy, or to play down the severity of certain things that he had done, because as close as he had been to Charles, in August 1472, Comines suddenly abandoned Burgundy and went to serve at the court of Charles's least favourite person, the French king, Louis XI. Nobody knows exactly why this happened, but we thought we would share one particularly entertaining explanation about why Comines flipped sides, and this is one which you should take not with a pinch of salt, but with a few kilos of it. It was written by Isaac Disraeli, the father of British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. He wrote this 200 years ago, so 350 years after the events supposedly took place. This story is almost certainly apocryphal, but it's too funny not to share. According to Disraeli, Charles and Philip de Comines had been out hunting one day, and when they returned, they were joking around together. As a part of the jest, Comines commanded Charles to remove his boots for him, flipping the role between master and servant. Charles played along, taking off one of Comines' boots, but suddenly he threw it into Comines' face and smashed his nose. From that point on, Comines gained the nickname in the court as Booted Head, which upset him so greatly 
that he decided to flip sides and head to France where he could give his insider knowledge to the French king. Like I said, there is a 99% chance that this is rubbish. Most historians now, including Richard Vaughan, whose biography of Charles the Bold is by far our favourite non-primary source, which we've been using a lot, but which I'm sure you'll agree with us, we'll all be very happy to not have to look at again after this episode, they all agree that Kamines probably flip sides for the same reason that people tend to do seemingly egregious things, which is to say, money. He got paid for it. You might remember that there was a long history between France and Burgundy of buying and selling loyalties, like we saw with the Croix family, who were in the French king's purse while basically governing Burgundy for Philip the Good. Louis XI was all for a bit of treachery himself, and exhibited his profound ability to go back on a promise many times. He lubricated the willingness of Burgundian insiders to feed him information by giving them cash, and so it probably was with Kamines. So from now on, whenever we talk about Kamines' writing, remember that after 1472, he was in the service of Louis XI directly. With that diversion out of the way, let's get back to it. You'll remember that before beginning the Siege of Neuss, Charles had agreed to support English King Edward IV's tenuous claim to the throne of France and to help him invade the continent. The planned date for this invasion was sometime before the 1st of July, 1475. Well, after Charles was forced to finally abandon the Siege of Neuss, it was towards this objective that he immediately turned his attention. But things did not exactly get off on the right foot, and miscommunications and disagreements between the English and Burgundians began to hamper the invasion before it had even begun. For starters, Edward had three options for where to land his armies, Guienne in the southwestern part of France, Normandy, or Calais. Charles had implored Edward to land at Normandy because, from his point of view, Guienne was simply too far away for his army to get there easily, and the region around Calais would not be able to sustain both the English and Burgundian armies being there at the same time. Edward, however, ignored these considerations and decided that Calais was, in fact, the right place. With Charles wasting his time at Neuss, the English then also took their sweet time ferrying their troops across to Calais, spending the whole month of June 1475, doing so with the help of ships from Holland. Finally, on the 6th of July 1475, the king himself, Edward, arrived in Calais, where he was greeted by his sister, Charles the Bold's wife, Margaret of York. As for the duke himself, and the troops that he had promised, well, there was no sign of them just yet. Finally though, belatedly, Charles did arrive at Calais on the 14th of July, but without an army. Well, as you might guess, all of these delays and the lack of Burgundian troops didn't quite give the necessary impetus required to launch a successful English invasion of France. Despite this, though, the English king and the Burgundian duke did spend some time refining their plans. The general idea was a two-pronged attack, with the Burgundians attacking Lorraine and the English driving into Champagne. Charles was adamant on invading Lorraine so that he could also teach a lesson to the young Duke of Lorraine, René, who, you might recall from last episode, had forsaken his allegiance to Charles when he joined the Treaty of Andernach alongside Louis XI and the Emperor. René, in the meantime, had also joined the League of Constance, that alliance of Swiss Eidgenossen, Alsatian towns, and the Duke of Austria. So this meant that René had now risen very highly on Charles's long list of people that he did not like at all. After invading Lorraine and Champagne, the Burgundian and English armies would then meet up at Reims, or Reims, where Edward would be crowned. Having agreed to all this, Charles left Calais and returned towards his army so he could focus on conquering Lorraine. Edward, on the other hand, began to look at this whole military campaign against France as just a little bit difficult, um, an exercise in hardship. It didn't help that Charles would not even let the English army camp inside any of his towns. 
Edward sent a small contingent to a town called St. Quentin, which was ruled by Charles's ally, the Count of St. Pol. Despite having given assurances otherwise, the Count of St. Pol changed his mind as the English force approached to find succor, and instead of opening the town's gates, he sent out a sally against them. Another of Edward's main allies, the Duke of Brittany, had completely failed to provide any help whatsoever. So Edward, who was not the most decisive character, found himself nowhere near as supported as he had been assured, and was probably wondering what he was doing there at all. Louis XI was well aware how much of a threat an Anglo-Burgundian invasion of France would pose to his own thinly stretched military, and realized that he would need to find some kind of alternative to fighting in order to get out of this doozy of a pickle. Undoubtedly helped by those problems just mentioned, Louis XI employed all of his influence to convince Edward to abandon the campaign. He told everybody of any importance just how much he thought Edward was a top-notch king and a good bloke, as Charles was heading for Namur to join his invasion force around August 17th, he learned that there were discussions happening between Edward and Louis, and so he set off as quickly as he could back to find Edward and to make sure that all their plans were continuing as he expected. When Edward and Charles met again, this time in Peron, Edward gave him the whole, yeah, nah, nah, promise I won't talk with Louis anymore. And Charles, somewhat mollified, once again headed off to Namur. But only one week later, he was then handed a letter from Edward, informing him that actually, yeah, the French and English kings have come to terms. Ouch. That's kind of like whispering sweet nothings to somebody and then breaking up with them over WhatsApp. At a nearby town called Pickingy, which I assume the residents of were quite picky when picking the name of the town Pickingy, Louis had a bridge built over the river with a special trellis in the middle where the two monarchs could meet but not actually come into direct contact with one another. This was so they could not surprise stab each other. Philip de Comines, now serving Louis XI, was part of the mission to bring Edward IV into this alliance, and when telling this part of the story, explicitly references the occasion a few generations prior when John the Fearless had met the French Dauphin on a bridge and been slain. After finishing the story, he tells us, quote, I shall speak of it no farther, only let me tell you, you have the story just as the king told it me himself, when he sent me to choose a place, commanding expressly that there should be no door. End quote. No stabby door. The terms of this Treaty of Picigny were that Edward would receive from Louis 75,000 crowns to pay for the expedition thus far, an annual imbursement of 50,000 crowns, and a marriage alliance between their daughters. As for Louis, well, he would not worry about an Anglo-Burgundian invasion force anymore, which would be nice for him. To woo the English even more, he then did what Charles had refused to do and opened up the town of Amiens for the English army commanding the town's taverns that they would not be charged. He basically gave them all a weeks-long free company trip in a French town, which I'm sure the innkeepers of Amiens were absolutely thrilled about. And so it was that Edward IV returned to England, and the planned Anglo-Burgundian invasion of France was cancelled before it even really began. Charles's pretensions were scuppered in a ceremony that deliberately reflected the occasion in which his grandfather had been murdered. Burgundian foreign policy, much like Star Wars lightsaber duels, seems to have been mostly decided on bridges. In the words of George Lucas, it's like poetry. It rhymes. With the signing of the Treaty of Picigny, Charles was left with no choice but to also come to peace with Louis XI. If he did not, then his invasion of Lorraine would inexorably be countered by annoying French invasions of his own lands. By the middle of September, he and Louis had signed their own nine-year peace treaty, which confirmed the border between them, returned a few towns to Burgundy which the French had grabbed, and confirmed who their allies were and who could and could not be attacked by either side without the treaty being violated. Five people were explicitly excluded from the terms of this treaty, which must have been quite demoralizing for those five people. Imagine, 
two powerful and historically antagonistic states agree to a historic peace, but you, individually, are not included. Well, this is what Philip de Camines was confronted with because he was one of the five. The terms allowed Charles to go and conquer Lorraine and then the Alsatian towns, and even to attack the Swiss if they joined in to help the other side. This in spite of the fact that Louis had been doing all he could to help the League of Constance come into being and to remain a thorn in Charles's side. Richard Vaughan suggests that this treaty was essentially a huge gamble by Louis XI, staying out of the oncoming conflict and hoping that Charles would get crushed by the League of Constance. If, on the contrary, Charles was to succeed in the upcoming wars, it would leave him more powerful than ever. We definitely think Louis XI should have been a betting man because this was a huge bluff. Louis, however, would not have called it a bluff, but possibly en bluff. But we ponder the word bluff now, dear listeners, because that brings us to Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch, the weirdly popular segment which we continuously bluff our way through each episode. Indeed, the English and French words for bluffing come from the Dutch word for bluffen, which means to mislead. And we bet you didn't know that was Dutch. I forbluff you not. The truce between France and Burgundy must have been an ominous sign for the still relatively new to the job Duke of Lorraine, René. During the Siege of Neuss, he had reneged on his alliance with Charles to pledge unity with the Emperor and the French King, with all of them together promising not to sign separate peace treaties with the Burgundian Duke. And what had happened since then? Well, Frederick and Louis had both signed separate peace treaties with the Burgundian Duke. It was no secret that Charles would now move against Lorraine, and he sent a missive to René in early September, basically telling him not to resist. His warning was clear, and he advised the young Duke to act carefully, lest Charles, quote, make him know the difference between his friendship and his enmity, end quote. By October, two Burgundian armies, one led by the Count of Campo Basso and Charles, and the other by his half-brother Anthony, were waltzing through Lorraine, submitting town after town before arriving at and putting to siege the capital, Nancy. If you are thinking that October is not the best time to be starting a siege, congratulations. You are less cocky than Charles the Bold. By this time, however, almost all of the rest of Lorraine had been conquered, so perhaps he had reason to think he would be inside Nancy before long. Doubtless, many in his large contingent had also recently spent a year bogged down outside Noyce and feared that they were settling in for much of the same here. The town's leaders remained loyal to René, and they were fiercely determined to hold out against Charles. Unlike Noyce, however, they did not have the same natural defences, they were less fortified, and those leaders were unable to spur the population on to sticking to a plan, as Hermann von Hesse had done in Noyce. In less than a month, the tide of opinion within the town walls was flowing towards submission. Duke René, who for his part had gone to France to try and get help from Louis XI, made little other effort to encourage what resistance was happening in his name. Soon he had given up, writing a letter on the 25th of November, giving the town permission to surrender. By the 28th, they had, and two days later, Charles walked through the dismantled town gates of Nancy in celebration of what had been a fairly easy endeavour. On the 18th of December, he was inaugurated as the new Duke of Lorraine. Although conquering Lorraine was not the most exhaustive military campaign that Charles had ever undertaken, it did finally mark the moment when he fulfilled the ambitions of his predecessors by connecting the southern and northern Burgundian domains. At this point, you could conceivably have walked from the Alps and end up at the North Sea and only ever pass through territory ruled by one person, being Charles. This had not been the case for ages, since way back in the 10th century when it had been ruled by the Duke of Lotharingia, Gislebert. Gislebert. Remember back when people had crazy names? Not like Charles and Edward. 
I miss those days. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to episode 5 when we got stuck into such wonderful nomenclature as Gerberga and Zventibold. During the reign of Gislebert, Lotharingia, the successor of Old Middle Francia, had continuously switched sides between France and Germany until it was eventually consumed by the two of them and split up into various parts, being Alsace, Upper Lorraine and Lower Lorraine. But now Charles had put Humpty Dumpty back together again. In the last episode, we said that when Charles was defeated by a Swiss army at Hericourt, it signified the beginning of his descent. It is worth pointing out that the argument has been made that, in fact, his submission of Lorraine marked the peak of his career, simply because of how much land he controlled. This, though, was more of a false summit. While he did rule vast domains and had finally connected them, he was hampered by the financial burden of the continual military campaigning needed to sustain it. A great alliance had formed against him, and he would need to defeat them decisively if he was to come out on top. Over the winter of 1475-76, Strasbourg, therefore, became convinced that it was next on the Burgundian hit list, and desperately began organising a defence. More than 600 buildings on the outskirts of the town were destroyed, simply to create a flat defensive expanse. A moat was then dug that encircled the entire city. Vast amounts of artillery were brought in, and provisions were garnered. Strasbourg decided that when its turn came, it was going to do a noise and not a Nancy. Surprisingly though, Charles made a decision which subverted people's expectations, and instead of going for Strasbourg, decided to wage war against the Swiss Eidgenossen. In the previous episode, we mentioned how the Swiss had jumped on the let's declare war on Charles bandwagon during the siege of Neuss, and an army had descended from the mountains to defeat the Burgundians at the Battle of Hericourt. They did not stop there, however, and by the end of October, a collection of Swiss towns, led by Bern, had occupied and taken control of an area called the Vaud. The Vaud, up until then, had been controlled by the Duchy of Savoy, whose Duchess Yolanda, sister to Louis XI, was one of Charles's few remaining allies. This was crucial territory for Charles, the Vaud, because he was hiring Italian mercenaries for his armies, and it was through the Vaud that they needed to travel in order to get over the mountains. Their movement through this area greatly antagonized the Swiss, who were already angry enough, particularly Baron, and their animosity further threatened Charles, so the whole cycle of conflict just kept going round and round. Soon, Charles was looking at Switzerland as his next target. One supposes that if he were able to get advice from his father, his grandfather, or his great-grandfather, they would probably all have said that this was a pointless folly. But be that as it may, at the end of January 1476, Charles began assembling an army at Besançon, preparing to launch a new invasion into Savoy and thereafter into Switzerland. He ordered all his towns in the region to send him artillery and supplies, and in a letter to Dijon, he justified this new campaign. Quote, to deliver our lands and subjects of Burgundy and those of the House of Savoy from the Swiss and other Germans who up until now have interfered in order to cause them various injuries, oppressions, and damages. End quote. In another letter to Geneva, which remained allied to Savoy and had not yet jumped into bed with Baron and the other Swiss Eidgenossen, he told them he was going to deal with, quote, the Bernese, Zurichers, and their allies, your enemies and ours, end quote. And we're going to see what happens when he does that. But much like Italian mercenaries needing to climb over mountains, we now need to climb over an ad break. So we'll see how Charles's battles against the Swiss work out for him on the other side. Welcome back. So before we get into the military escapades, which are about to be unleashed, it's worth letting our old mate, Richard Vaughan, help us clarify what we mean when we talk about the Swiss. Quote, 
The phrase the Swiss is both misleading and inaccurate. Against Charles the Bold in the early months of 1476 was ranged a motley and apparently ill-assorted collection of small powers, a mixture of towns like Strasbourg, Basel and Bern, rural communities like Uri, Schweiz and Unterwalden, prelates like the bishops of Strasbourg, Basel and Sion, and two substantial secular rulers, the Dukes of Lorraine and Austria-Tyrol, René and Sigismund. In essence, this alliance was an enlarged League of Constance. In the middle of February, the Burgundian army set out to attack two places with castles, at Yverdun and Granson. When they got to Yverdun, though, they found that it had been abandoned. The Swiss garrison there had decided to hole up in Granson instead, so that altogether they could make one great stand against this onslaught by Burgundy. On the 19th, Burgundians attacked Granson, easily subjecting the town, but taking the castle of Granson proved a more difficult objective. After just a week and a half, however, the several hundred strong garrison there was forced to surrender. This was impressive to say the least, as the castle had been standing since the 11th century and should have been easily defended. Reports from some of the Bernese who escaped tell us that Charles's artillery had made a huge impact, destroying the defenders' guns and killing the master of their own artillery. According to the ambassador of Milan, Panicarola, who was with Charles at the time, the garrison at Granson had been assured that their surrender would be met with mercy. Another story tells that members of the Swiss army had managed to secretly row a boat close enough to the castle to catch the garrison's attention from afar. But instead of correctly interpreting their frantic spear thrusts in the air as something like, hold tight, we're coming, they interpreted it as, all's lost, seek mercy. The garrison surrendered. Some sources are adamant that they had received assurances of mercy, while others that the surrender bore no conditions. Regardless, once they were taken into the control of the Duke of Burgundy, they received no mercy. He spent four hours, having all 400 or so either hung on the many walnut trees that grew around the place, or drowned in Lake Neuchâtel. While this was going on, a force of Swiss troops had assembled at the town of Neuchâtel and marched out to meet Charles's armies. At the nearby town of Concise, whose name we really appreciate for its ability to convey large amounts of information in a small amount of letters, a skill that we sometimes find ourselves rather lacking. The Burgundians became aware of the Swiss presence, but grossly underestimated the size and scale of it. Perhaps they should have been more concise. The Burgundian cavalry surrounded the Swiss vanguard, thinking it was the entire Swiss force, and after that, Charles called them back to begin an artillery bombardment. At this point, though, when the Burgundians were pulling back, the rest of the Swiss army emerged, causing panic and confusion. A rout ensued, and even though Charles personally set about ordering his troops to hold fast, most of them fled. Although the Swiss could not inflict that much actual physical damage on Burgundian forces, the symbolic victory was immense. The greatest army in Western Europe had been humiliated by a bunch of mountain people. Furthermore, the entire Burgundian baggage train was captured, meaning a huge amount of Charles's precious treasure and artifacts, which for some reason he took around with him, was all captured by the Swiss. This included Charles's throne, his jeweled hat, which he used as a crown, his silver bathtub, guess he left his gold one at home, so many jewels and diamonds, tents, banners, his personal seal, which I haven't double-checked this, but I'm pretty sure is just like a stamp, not an actual seal that he carries around for emotional support. Giving fish to when he's feeling sad. <laughs> and a whole lot of cannons. It was a huge amount of booty, and for a guy who was already under severe financial pressures, undoubtedly an utter disaster. One Swiss soldier who had been present when they had retaken Granson and entered the town, Petermann Etterlin, later wrote of his experience seeing what Charles had done to the murdered garrison. Quote, 
They were found sadly, the honourable men still freshly hanging on the trees in front of the castle whom the tyrant had hanged. It was a wretched, pitiable sight. There were hung ten or twenty men on one bow. The trees were bent down and were completely full. Here hanged a father and a son next to each other. There, two brothers or other friends. And there came the honourable men who knew them, who were their friends, cousins and brothers, who found them miserably hanging. There was first anger and distress in crying and bewailing. End quote. When the Swiss forces retook the castle, most of the Burgundians there were chucked out of the window, being defenestrated all the way to their deaths. The result of the Battle of Granson and the anger and distress caused by the treatment of the garrison by Charles has long been seen as an important one in galvanizing and developing Swiss unity against Burgundy. As for how much the loss affected Charles, well, like any narcissist, he was able to define his own reality and completely ignore the severity of the defeat. Charles thought a bit too much of himself and his God-given right to conquest to have been seriously curtailed by it, no matter how many tongues around Europe it set wagging. Slightly humiliated, yes, but certainly not greatly interrupted. He soon began to reassemble armies to continue his invasion, which apart from Grandson had actually been largely successful so far. He had managed to take most of the Vaud region, but for one town called Merton. This would be his next target. In April 1476, camped by Lausanne, Charles fell badly ill, complaining of great discomfort in his stomach. At the end of the month, he lost consciousness and those close to him even feared for his life as he lay bedridden. By the 2nd of May, however, he had recovered enough to be able to eat and have a chat and soon thereafter could resume his plans to subjugate the Swiss. His army would aim for Bern, but first had to take the strategically important town of Merton. His intent was greater than ever. According to sources, by now, he had accepted the failure of Granson, but was determined to get revenge. He told Panigarola that he, quote, could not live with having been defeated by these bestial people, end quote. The Burgundians set off for Merton on the 27th of May and laid siege to it some two weeks later. His army was split into four corps, each camped on specific positions surrounding the town. On the 18th of June, the first attack occurred, accompanied by heavy bombardment, but it failed to break the town's defence. In addition to their cannonade, the Burgundians shot bolts into the city with little notes attached to them telling the occupants that their cause was lost, that no relief was coming, and that soon, all of them would be hanging from rope. On the 21st of June, the Burgundians stood in battle formation, having been informed and being of full belief that the Swiss army was hurrying to the rescue of Merton. They were sure that an attack was imminent. Charles even went with a scouting party and viewed, with his own eyes, elements of the Swiss camp not so far in the distance. But the attack did not happen. Unbeknownst to Charles, the Swiss were going to attack when expected, but were delayed, waiting for a contingent from Zurich. When the attack did not happen, despite all of their intelligence to the contrary, Charles inexplicably decided that the Swiss had changed their whole strategy and had decided upon a defensive war. This was completely incorrect, and obviously so, the very nature of the Swiss alliance made such a long-term campaign as a defensive war impossible. Its troops were regular people who had families and land to care for. Their only option was to attack. But after having had his troops standing around for a day waiting in vain for that attack, Charles convinced himself otherwise and allowed his troops some rest the next day. And that, of course, is when the Swiss did attack. The day opened with rainy, dreary weather. But in the late morning, just as the sun began to poke out, so too did the first of the Swiss forces emerging from the forest about a kilometre from the Burgundian position. One of those in charge of the Swiss forces was none other than René, the Duke of Lorraine, who Charles had deposed. 
The Buganians had little time to organise, only around 20 minutes, and could not make their formations, which they had stood in for so long the day before. English archers and some artillery were quickly arranged to take on the screaming assault of the Swiss vanguard. But the archers were soon overcome, and the two armies locked horns. It was chaos for Charles and for his army. Soon they were routed in many different positions, thousands of his soldiers fleeing, many of them being picked off brutally. Between deserters, casualties and fatalities, Charles lost up to two-thirds of his army. Vaughan puts it that he, quote, was the victim of one of the most destructive and decisive battles in the military history of the Middle Ages, end quote. Estimates are that the Burgundian army lost anywhere between 10 and 20,000 soldiers, whereas the Swiss are thought to have lost only around 3,000. Charles was forced to flee with what remained of his retinue, stopping only once briefly until he reached a place called Gex in Savoy the next evening. Panicarola, the Milanese ambassador, reckons that Charles, even despite yet another serious failure, was still not as dispirited as one might think. His extreme faith that God was backing him left him adamant that he could endure countless such defeats and still be able to muster an army of 150,000 men, even at his most unlikely hour. To do this, though, as we have seen time and again, Charles would need money. So he went to his cash cows out in the paddock, being the estates of his low country territories, which this podcast has failed to talk about for yet another episode, and asked them to once again open up their wallets and fork out cash for him. The last time he had done this had been in 1473, when he had taken the unique step of issuing six years' worth of taxes on those territories, but had promised that there would be no other demands made of them. Now that he was making yet another demand, however, Flanders and the other estates of those lowlander territories did not budge. They would give no more money. Charles had no choice but to try and make promises of increased pay and booty in order to stop his remaining army from abandoning him. By the latter half of 1476, this army totaled only around 10,000, the lower end of the estimates of his losses at the Battle of Merton. In both Granson and Merton, the Begunians had been surprised, outnumbered, and defeated, despite the the top-of-the-line planning and resources that Charles could employ. News of the defeats echoed around Europe, serving to inspire people under the Begunian thumb to do as the Swiss had done, and shake it off. In Lorraine, anti-Burgundian forces began taking back the duchy, and by the end of July, they had succeeded in all but the capital of Nancy. The reconquest of Lorraine forced Charles to turn his attention from Savoy, simultaneously throwing his alliance with the Duchess Yolanda into the flames. After his defeat at Merton, Charles had had Yolanda arrested, basically conducting a coup. This, however, also failed to reap the results he desired. There were several uprisings against Burgundian troops in Geneva as a result, and in October 1476, Louis XI organized the rescue of his sister. So that whole ploy having failed, Charles turned his attention back to Lorraine, where he now had to embark upon a re-reconquest of it, this time without any allies of note and a much smaller army, which had already been defeated twice that year. Charles waited until the end of September 1476 to embark upon this campaign, which completely messed things up. By that time, Duke René had managed to retake the last town which the Burgundians had held, Nancy. This meant that René now had garrisons in all the main towns of Lorraine. For some reason, Charles did not set about taking these strongholds back, but instead concentrated everything upon re-seizing the capital, and he began to put Nancy to siege on the 22nd of October. Unfortunately, there is little known about the siege of Nancy, as no good surviving documents have been found that specifically relate people's experiences. Assumedly, like pretty much any siege, it would have been bloody awful. It does seem that during the course of this siege, Charles got to experience his own feeling of impending doom, probably not as intensely as those upon whom he had inflicted it in the past would have felt, 
But still, doom. Letters that he was sending were getting no responses, which indicated that Lorraine forces had blocked off his supply chain and communications. Some sources tell us that around this time, he really started to emulate his hero, Alexander the Great, and began to drink a lot. Charles had never been a big drinker, but supposedly now, without his emotional support seal, he found the cause. He was alone, outnumbered, desperately needing more troops, and aware that the League of Constance would be sending an army to relieve Nancy. Rene of Lorraine, meanwhile, was trying desperately to get that Swiss army to do just that. Mostly the Heidgenossen refused, arguing that it was too cold for campaigning, which I would agree. But Rene threw some cash and promises around, buying as many mercenaries of his own as he could, and he also found willingness among those Alsatian towns who had no qualms about marching off to kill Burgundians. Over December, these forces gathered and left Basel, including the main body, on the 26th. Charles went into a sort of denialism, becoming convinced that everything was okay because he was who he was. The confidence that had served him so well in expanding his power until now, now became a weakness. When told that one of his chief commanders, the Count of Campo Basso, was going to betray him, he refused to believe it. By the 31st of December 1476, Charles could not deny that the Swiss army was approaching. He wrote to the Lord of Fay on that date, saying, quote, Since we have now been truthfully informed of the approach of our enemies, we wish and we expressly command you that as soon as you read this, you come to us and in our service and bring with you all the nobles with fiefs and subfiefs and all other troops both mounted and on foot that you can find in our land and duchy of Luxembourg. If you cannot come in person, send us with the greatest possible diligence, those nobles and others both mounted and on foot. Do not fail in this in any way. End quote. As the Swiss contingents made their way towards Nancy, Duke René ordered his garrisons in towns and forts along the way to join them, growing and forming this great allied force that outnumbered Charles's forces by many times. On the 4th of January, the assembled force that had come together to take down the Duke of Burgundy rendezvoused around five kilometres from where he and his besieging army were camped. Also there was the Count of Campo Basso, who Charles had not believed was going to switch sides. Guess what? He'd switch sides. The Swiss army was atypical for the time, though. It did not have a single commander-in-chief, nor was it dominated by any one group within. It was arguably just a physical expression of general contempt for Burgundian rule. Here's Vaughan again, quote, It was an army of allies, of contingents from the enemies of Burgundy and their supporters, which had been assembled from far and wide, though its nucleus had marched from Basel. Alongside Duke René's Lorrainers and the mercenaries he had raised in Bern, Zurich, Luzerne, Schweiz, Glarus, Zofingen, and elsewhere among the Eidgenossen were the men of the Sungau, of Basel, of Colmar, of Celestad, and of Strasbourg. Among the banners and pennons which fluttered over the Allied army were those of Duke Sigismund of Austria and of the bishops of Basel and Strasbourg. In the description of this army which Duke René apparently dictated to one of his secretaries, he claimed to have with him some 19 to 20,000 men, 2,000 horse, and 7,000 foot in the vanguard, and the whole of the rest of the army, apart from a reserve of 800 culverineers in the main battle, which included a further 2,000 horse. Detailed statements elsewhere leave no doubt that there were at least 6,000 Swiss in the army, and there seems no reason to dispute Duke René's figures. Thus, Charles was probably outnumbered by something like three or four to one. End quote. The day of the battle was the 5th of January, 1477. It was snowing heavily, and nobody could see anything at much distance. Charles made two telling strategic errors in how he prepared for the forthcoming battle. The first was engaging at all. 
many of his captains were counselling that they withdraw, which he simply refused. That being the case, the second error he made was failing to have a nearby forest edge properly scouted or reconnoitred. And it is into that forested area that a vanguard of the Allied army veered away from its course towards Nancy. Hundreds of men and horses began pushing through thick, cold and difficult terrain. It was worth it though, as it brought them to Charles's right flank. Around midday, the waiting Burgundians, who were none the wiser to this sneaky move made by the Allies in the blinding snow, suddenly heard three blasts on a horn and a roaring scream as these men poured out of the forest and crashed unexpectedly into Charles's cavalry. They had taken Charles's artillery out of the equation as it was aimed in the wrong direction and could not be moved in time. When they overtook the positions of the guns, the rest of the Allied forces began their frontal assault. Soon, what had happened in Granson and Merton was happening outside of Nancy. Charles's army disintegrated in blood and flesh and fire, but also in acts of desperate escape. As they fled towards the nearest city that was safe for a Burgundian, which was Metz, thousands were cut down, not only by the assaulting soldiers, but also by peasants and free people who came across them along the way and took their own personal revenge against the might of Burgundy. The onslaught was so overwhelming that Charles too was quickly in the thick of it himself, doing his best to Alexander the Great himself out of what was quickly becoming the most untenable situation in his life. Fighting furiously is the last act that anybody saw Charles the Bold engaged in. Afterwards, nobody had any idea what had become of him. Had he too fled, or had his aggressive militarism finally caught up with him? A chronicler in Metz witnessed to the thousands of soldiers who had fled the battle and were turning up pleading for refuge inside the city, wrote, quote, The battle was indeed a woeful catastrophe for the said ruler of Burgundy, who was then the most feared and redoubtable prince one could think of, and also the best loved by his subjects. Mm. This was well shown by the fact that they would not believe in his death, especially the people of Artois and several others of these Burgundians, for they stupidly and obstinately asserted that he had escaped from the battle into Germany, and had there vowed to undertake a seven-year penance, after which he would return in great power and avenge all his injuries and insults. His subject was so convinced that this was so, that I knew several who, extremely obstinate in this credulity, put up for sale clothes and armor, horses, precious stones and other goods, and if anyone bought them, they sold them on credit at two or three times the right price with payment deferred until their Prince Charles returned after completing his penance, end quote. But Charles was not doing penance. Well, not in the earthly realm, anyway. Because he was dead. His body was not found until two days after the battle. Like all the corpses that littered the area, anything of value, jewellery, ornaments and whatnot, had been taken by scavengers. His head had been cleaved in twain, like his grandfather John's had been on that bridge. Wolves and other creatures had apparently eaten his face and whatever other good bits they could get to. In fact, the only way that the Burgundians knew it was him is because of old battle scars that one of his physicians was able to identify. Charles the Bold's demise, that is, his life disappearing in a violent rage of anonymity, marked not only the end of his own life, but also that of the line of Valois Burgundian dukes. Charles had not had a legitimate son, so although his daughter Mary would now become the Duchess of Burgundy, due to the patriarchal nature of the society, it was whoever married her that would become their ruler, and any children that they had would take his name. The effects of this would be enormous on the Netherlands as the somewhat shell-shocked people in its towns who had borne the financial burden and who had also contributed so many of the troops that had been lost in the last years of Charles's military follies would quickly move to reassert their own desires and agendas. 
many of which Charles had spent years ruthlessly quashing. As regards the traditions of the transfer of power in the Burgundian state, Mary is going to have to quickly deal with a bunch of disgruntled subjects. And that, folks, is where, with no shortage of relief, we will head back to next episode. Totstrucks, Dewey! Thank you all very much for listening to another episode of History of the Netherlands. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter. We're always pretty active, just spouting out lots of random, sometimes history-connected things, at History of NL. We invite and encourage you to also leave us a review on any which podcast listening app that you are using. Five-star reviews are our favorite, aren't they, Julian? Yes. And then finally, of course, it is time to induct our newest members into the order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. Although we are changing era after this episode, we may have to change nomenclature just to, you know, fit in with the progress of the times. But before we do that, let us ordain our newest members, Ilya Brodsky, Ily. Mate, I met you in real life. Thank you very much for uh, recognizing my voice at a pub. Never happened to me before. Even better, after meeting me at a pub, people have never gone home and sent money to me before. So thanks, Illy. Really appreciate it. Jay Slot, Padlock, thanks very much as well, mate. You're an absolute legend. Welcome to the order. And finally for this week, a father-daughter duo, Eric and Sammy Hansen, our favorite Hansen family, easily. They bopped their way through Dutch history together. So thank you very much to you two and welcome to the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. If you want to be like those fantastic people, you can go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. There you can choose whatever amount you want to support the show in. A buck a show is always a good place to start. And you can also see some of the other things that we've done, bonus episodes we've made. And uh, we are also releasing a range of t-shirts coming soon so you can see the designs for them up there as well normally after the death of a valois burgundian duke we will have a little summary about what they've meant for the history of the netherlands and we haven't done that with charles but in a future episode we are going to be able to wrap up the whole valois burgundian era together as one so we'll leave charles dead in his ditch for the moment and we'll come back to seeing what impact directly he had on the history of the netherlands that's it for now See you later. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.